Okay. Ready to go for another one. Yay, I know, another week. Short week next week, right? Yes. What? Yay, short week next week? Fall break, no classes on Monday or Tuesday? So. you told me that. I wouldn't be here Monday. I won't be here Monday, so. I'll be, I'll be here Tuesday because we have an in-service, so I have to work Tuesday, but you guys don't have classes Monday and Tuesday. Oh, yeah, we get all of one day breaks. So, yeah. Yay. All right, so assignments coming up. We have a homework assignment due on Wednesday, and we have a quiz that should be available through Wednesday. If you haven't taken it yet, we should finish up that material. We'll finish most of it today, and anything else we'll finish by. We'll finish a little bit of it on maybe Wednesday Wednesday class. And then we have an exam coming up on Friday. Yay, I know. But, and you can tell me if you think this is better. I used to do just two exams and make them longer ones, like you'd have your whole lab period, but you'd have two big exams on like six and seven chapters. This time I started splitting them up when I had only the one hour lecture for the other class. So if you prefer that, I'll keep, I mean, if students rather prefer, my online one still said they'd rather have just two exams, so I kept them with just two big exams. Yeah. So, what can I say? But I said I, you know, I don't mind making it's, it's much. It's not really any more work for me to grade two small exams than it is to grade you know four big two. I mean four small exams versus two big exams. The same amount of grading is just spread out more. So, yeah. So okay. So we'll keep it that way. Homework doesn't homework four doesn't apply to you. Yours is probably going to be about a week later. I'll put it up there afterwards. But. That's homework four. They're about on schedule, but if I give you if I gave you the homework for today, it's for chapters that I won't start mostly until next Wednesday. And then if, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna be at least another. So you're gonna and the homework's gonna be a little bit staggered between my two classes now, which is fine. It makes it easier to grade if they're a week apart. I don't have don't have two classes worth at once. I only have one class at a time. And then quiz four is scheduled for October 21st. I do this quiz a little bit differently. This one is in class. This one won't be online. Is that good, bad? bad. Uh-oh. <laughs> Sorry. Why, you won't be here that day? No. Yeah. I'm like, no, I won't be here. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a, it's a quiz. The way I do this quiz, it's a lot easier for me to do it in class. So, so I'm scheduling for the 21st. I'll let you know. I'll make sure we've gotten through all the material for it first. If we haven't gotten through the material, of course, that date can change. But that's where I'm scheduling it for it right now. So, so we can, these two you can ignore. These two don't apply to you. You just have to worry about these three and that one. So, but yes, that, that one. Then we'll go back to the online quizzes after the following. Actually, I think you'd probably get one the following week because I think we're due for an iTunes one and a quiz five coming up like the week in a week. So we'll have like three quizzes in a row. But at least they're on small sections, right? Okay. Picture of the day for today. Video of the day for today, actually. It's a video. So, it is the universe. This is actually a computer simulation of what we call dark matter in the universe. So it's actually a computer simulation, and I'll start it here in a minute. And it sort of flies you through and works you through this computer simulation they've done with all these particles, put everything together, looked at all the interactions between them, and took 6 million CPU hours. So it took 6 million CPU hours to generate what you're going to see. So a lot of computing time, because you have to look when you're talking about gravity, you've got to look at the interaction between every object and every other object. So each object here interacts with all the others. And you've got to do all those calculations in order to do the, pro do the simulation properly. 
So that's what we're going. That's what you're going to be seeing here. Now this is not the visible matter. So this isn't what the universe looks like if you look at it through an optical telescope. This is what we call dark matter. Now dark matter we come back to probably towards the end of November. We'll talk about it in class a little more. But dark matter is just that. It's dark. We don't see it. And it's not just dark in the visible sense that you can't see it visibly, but oh, we can see it with radio waves or we can see it in x-rays. It's just, it's completely dark. The only way we see this matter is through its interactions gravitationally with the material we can see. And there's a lot of it out there. If these are, for every galaxy that we see out there, you know, we see all the stars, we can see the stars in it, we can see the nebulae that emit light. But for all the matter that we can see in that galaxy, there's ten times more matter that we can't see. So there's a lot of dark matter that we do not see. And that's what this is just showing you, sort of how the dark matter is distributed. Now you may note that if we looked at some pictures of the universe, they doesn't look all that different. I think we looked at some early on, maybe the first chapter, we saw a couple pictures of the universe when we went way out. And it doesn't look all that different. Dark matter doesn't interact with normal matter. So we're used to this little tiny bit of normal matter that is everything we see and are familiar with in the universe. Dark matter interacts gravitationally, but that's about it. So it's nothing that's visible. It doesn't emit any kind of radiation that we can see. So there's no other way to detect it except through its gravitational influence. But the galaxies don't move the way gravity says they should, the way Newton and Einstein say they should. So this matter has been the, has been the the thought process to actually determine why the galaxies move. And again, we'll get to this a lot more detail later in the class, but why the galaxies rotate and move within clusters the way they do. And there can be, again, I said as much as ten times within a galaxy, within a single galaxy, for every you know, star you see, there's ten more stars that you don't, there's ten more stars worth of matter that you don't see. And it's not just hydrogen gas, it's nothing else, because we could detect hydrogen gas if there was just hydrogen gas permeating the universe. Hydrogen gas emits radio waves. We could detect it. So it's some, there's something else there that we don't completely understand, but we do know it is there. But it doesn't interact with energy and things the same way that normal matter does. So it actually started to form structures earlier on in the universe. So we think that the dark matter started to clump, and then the normal matter, the stuff we're used to, whether it's normal or not because it's such a tiny proportion of everything that we see is another good question, started to clump around those. So the image doesn't look all that different than what you might see visibly. But this giant cluster, this may have been a cluster, there could be more cluster, there could be ga many galaxies within inside that, what we see as one big cluster, one big lump here. There could be many of our galaxies or a whole galaxy cluster within it. So, and then dark matter is just the start of it because, you know, we have our little bit of visible light, which is everything we see. You know, everything we have here on Earth, that's regular normal matter. This is something different. And then there's dark matter, which might be 10 to 100 times, depending on the galaxy or the cluster, 10 to 100 times more than what we see. And then there is now something called dark energy, which actually may be more of a component to the universe than dark matter. So our little bit of stuff, everything that we see in the sky is just a little tiny fraction of, apparently of what there is in the universe. And we'll come, back, we'll come back and talk about those more later in the class. But just an interesting little simulation. Again, six million CPU hours on the seventh fastest supercomputer in the world to calculate all of those, 
all those interactions between that, that matter. Questions? And again, we'll, say we'll come back to a lot of that later at the, towards the end of the class. No? Go back to something a little closer to home, the sun? All right. And this is where we finished up last time. We were looking at this slide. We had just finished the solar interior. And this is when we looked at the, oh, should have, should have said, I mentioned it to the other class. If you went looking for the lecture, I don't know how many of you actually do, it disappeared on Friday. I don't know what happened to it. I recorded it. It said it was recording. The red light was on, because I usually check that. And when I went to put them on the computer, I plug it into the computer you know, and go into iTunes. And iTunes did some sort of blip and disappeared, and so did those two files only. So those two are gone and lost, and you know all of my wisdom given to you, those two, is whatever you've got in your head is all that's left of it. So you do have, if you go on to WebCT, I put a video lecture up there so you can see sort of what I had, but exactly what I said that day is now gone and disappeared. It's not that I forgot to put them up, I went to do it, and they, they disappeared somewhere out, and you know, somehow the system decided to delete them. Nobody can figure out how, because it's not supposed to do that, but I saw them. I said when I stopped, it said I'd recorded you know, 49 minutes and some seconds. So I said, well, that's right. So I don't know. But they're gone. So if you're looking for them, you're not going to find them. I'm sorry. OK, so that's what happened to my discussion there. For the, so our first part of the sun is lost, but it's still on the test. So this is what we were looking at. We were looking at, I was telling you about the convective part of the sun. And this was our evidence for convection. When we look at the surface of the sun, we see what we call granulation. It's got this mottled surface, and you see brighter areas, which are hotter areas of material welling up from the interior. And then around them is darker areas of material, cooler material going back down. So you're seeing temperature differences, hotter and colder. So colder, dark areas, hotter, bright areas. And that's just material again, hot material coming up from the, from the interior and cooler material going down. So that's, our, that's the solar interior. That finishes up the solar interior that we talked about on Friday. And then we're going to go into the atmosphere. Now we looked at that nice spectrum of the sun. These are a little bit nicer. I showed you that really beautiful one that was one whole page when we talked about the spectra you know, way back a couple chapters ago. This is a little bit easier to see. This isn't quite as much, de in, in quite as much detail. It's not spread out quite as much. But you can see what, what they've gone through is they've identified certain lines here. So there's that bright red line of hydrogen. There's sodium, mercury, iron, more hydrogen, calcium, iron, calcium, iron. So we're seeing some of the things that calcium has this real nice bright pair in the sun. There. So we're seeing some of the things that the sun is made up of. Now if you look at it in enough detail, all those lines, you can detect what is it? 91 elements in the sun. So there's 92 relatively stable elements. 43 is not a stable element, so you can't usually detect that. But you can detect you know, all other 90 elements. You can detect uranium in the sun. You can detect gold. You can detect platinum. You know, it's all there. If you've got some sort of solar mining ship where you can go get all the sun, all the gold and platinum out of the sun, you, know, you could bring down the price of gold real easily because you could probably bring out a solid gold earth. You know. But you've got to find some way to get there and how do you get it out of that you know, thing that's 6,000 degrees at the surface and goes up to 15 million? A little warmer than anything we got to get, get anything out of there. But there, I mean, it's all there. Gold, gold, lead, mercury, platinum. 
Everything is there. Oxygen. But when we learn about this, when we look at it, it only tells us what's in the layers we can see. So it's not telling me what the interior of the sun is made up of. It's the same, we think it's the same, but I can't but when I look at something all I can see is the visible layers. So all I can tell you is what the surface of the sun, the photosphere, that outer layer when you look at the sun, I can tell you what that's made up of. You know, could you come up with some odd thing where the sun is, you know, some big hunk of just pure lead underneath? How it would be stable would be a different question, but you know, I can't see it. I can't tell you other than through inference from, well, this is what the outer layers are. The sun is probably pretty much uniform throughout. Now we can learn, so we learn about, that's how we learn about the composition of the sun. But we can do that for anything. We can do that for any object and we'll do the same thing for other stars, for galaxies. We can do the same kind of analysis and if we see those spectral lines, they tell us which elements are present. Now, you'll see that some are stronger than others. For example, in the sun, it looks like calcium is very, very, looks like there's lots of calcium in the sun, right? Look how much cal, look how dark those lines are. And the hydrogen lines are there, but they're kind of weak. How dark the line is doesn't tell us how much. It tells us a lot more about the temperature. So just because the calcium lines are so dark doesn't mean that the sun is made up of calcium. There's not a lot of you know, calcium in the sun. There is, but the sun is still 99% hydrogen and helium. All the calcium and iron and all this other stuff is 1%. It's just like less than 1%. Why they're so bright is that the calcium, remember the orbitals, right? You had certain energy levels. Well, the sun is just the right temperature to excite the calcium. So the calcium is very, very bright because the sun is at the perfect temperature. Now we'll come back to this in the next chapter and talk about it a lot more. But the sun happens to be that perfect temperature to excite calcium into these two lines and, and make it visible. If the sun were a lot hotter, if you look in a much hotter star, it can have the same amount of calcium as the sun, but those lines will be much fainter. Same thing with hydrogen. Hydrogen, it looks like the hydrogen lines, they're kind of washed in there. They're there, you can see them. There's a hydrogen line. There's a hydrogen line, hydrogen, you see a few of them, right? But they don't look very prominent. There's a lot of other bright things. That doesn't mean there's no hydrogen in the sun. It just means that the, the sun is a little too cool. The sun isn't warm enough to excite the hydrogen. You have to excite, in order to see those lines, you have to get hydrogen. You know, the red line is, the is this transition here. When you're going from the ground, first, second, third excited states. So if you're going from the second excited state to the first excited state, you know, that's that we call H alpha or the red hydrogen line. So in order to get these up there, we need to have a certain amount of energy. And we have to get them, we have to get that electron from the ground state up to the second or above so that it will come back down through this transition to see it. If the sun is so cool that almost all the hydrogen is sitting in the ground state and doesn't get excited up to the excited state, then you're never going to see it. So you'll never see the hydrogen lines. So just because you don't see a line of an element doesn't mean it's not there. Or it can be weak. If you go to cooler stars, the sun isn't the hottest star in the world. It's nice for us, but you have stars that are half the temperature of the sun. Those hydrogen lines get even weaker and start to disappear. 
when you get up to much hotter stars, the hydrogen line gets stronger because you're getting, you're getting the electrons excited up above these levels. And as they come back down, they're constant, in a constant cycle and you'll get a real strong hydrogen line. So we'll come back to this a little bit in the next chapter 10. Yeah, chapter 10. We'll do a lot more on chapter 10 there. And we'll go through that. But it, just because you see a line and just how dark it looks doesn't really necessarily tell you that there's a lot of it there. It tells you that it is there. So finding the hydrogen line means that there's hydrogen, but you have to work out the temp you can work out the temperatures and that helps you get the compositions when you know the temperature of the star, you know exactly the what the element strength should be. Okay. So that was the photosphere. And again, we're going to come back to a lot of the more technical parts there in the next chapter. The cooler chromosphere. So the photosphere is what we see. So when you glance at the sun and you see that big yellow ball, that's the photosphere, which is about 6,000 degrees, 5,800 degrees. Above that, there's more material. The sun doesn't end there at the photosphere. It's got an atmosphere around it. We just don't see it. It's very hard to see. It's a lot fainter. And the chromosphere is, a very, is much cooler than the sun. It's reddish. How it got its name, the chromosphere, is the sphere of color. So it is a different, it's, it's a cooler area, it's red and it's around the edge of the sun, but you can't see it. When you just look at the sun, you don't see it. Because the photosphere is so much brighter, it washes out everything else and you see nothing else. But during an eclipse, remember it's kind of nice. The moon and the sun are almost exactly the same size. So the moon blocks out just the photosphere of the sun, then you can see right around the edge the chromosphere. So that's when it's actually visible. So it can make, can make you wonder if there was another, what if the moon were a lot bigger, if the moon were closer to the earth and it constantly blocked out a whole big chunk of the sun, you might, it might be much, it would be much harder to detect this chromosphere. I mean, we happen to detect it now. I mean, maybe now with spaceflight we could get it, we'd learn it, but maybe you'd learn about it hundreds of years later than you actually, than we did. Because it's just that nice coincidence for us that the moon happens to exactly block the surface of the sun so that you can see the sphere of color around it. So that's the only time you can see it is during an eclipse or an artificial eclipse. You can make your own, you can make your own eclipse too with the telescope and block out the sun and be able to see it. But that's the chromosphere. So that's the next layer up. You have the photosphere. The chromosphere is a little bit cooler around that. And then, well here in the chromosphere you get some interesting you start to get the storms. You start to see the storms that start with the sunspots on the surface. And then you get all of these structures, the magnetic field twisting, these, these spicules come up. So you actually get more material flowing upward and outward through the sun. Now most of the images that you see of the sun, you see a lot of detailed ones like this, are all taken in this wavelength. So they're only looking at that specific wavelength of light. This is why they look a little reddish. You're taking it in the H alpha light, which is you're just looking at the hydrogen. But the hydrogen is most of the sun, so you're seeing that detail. But you're not seeing, you can wipe out everything else and you can focus just on that light. But you're seeing some of the evidence of solar storms here, and we'll come back to the solar activity in a little more detail coming up. But that's what, the, again, that's part of the chromosphere, these spicules. Now the corona even outer atmosphere. So you had the photosphere was the surface. And even that isn't very dense. I mean it's less dense than, it's like more the density of our atmosphere, you know, thereabouts. When you block out the 
chromosphere and the photosphere, there's an even less dense area around, which we call the corona. So that's the very outer atmosphere of the sun. And that's where the solar wind is coming from. So that's where materials are being pushed off into interplanetary space. So from the corona, materials get pushed off, cause the aurora that we see, and interact with our Earth's magnetic field. But if you block out everything underneath it, if you block out the chromosphere and the photosphere, then you can see the corona. And that's the outermost layer of the solar atmosphere. So going inward, you have the corona is furthest out. Then you have the chromosphere. Then you have the photosphere. And then below that, you have the layers of the interior of the sun. So if these are blocked, then you're, when you block those, you're able to see the corona. Now temperature-wise, I said that the, photos, the photosphere was about 5,000 degrees. Chromosphere gets a few thousand degrees, cool, thousand or 2,000 degrees cooler. But then the corona gets hot. Not just a little bit hot, it gets super hot. It goes back up to a million, two million degrees. So temperature-wise, we were at about 6,000 degrees here. That's the surface. As we go further away from the sun, what happens to the temperature? Well, I told you in the chromosphere it cools off. So it goes down to maybe 4,500 4, degrees. So that would make sense, right? You're getting further away from the sun, it should cool off. All of a sudden, when you get a little further away than that, it shoots up you know, past the surface temp temperature of the sun, past 10,000, 100,000, over a million degrees out in the corona. So it's pretty hot out there. Now you have to remember, it wouldn't feel hot necessarily if you just go there you know, and stick your coffee cup out there. It's not going to make your coffee boil because there's hardly any particles there. Remember what temperature is. Temperature is just measuring motion. It measures the motion of the particles. So it means that what it's telling us is that these particles out here in the corona are moving incredibly fast. So not that there's millions and billions and billions of them in every cubic inch that you'd normally have here on Earth. But they're moving very, very fast. We think that there has, so there has to be some source to heat them up. There has to be some reason they're going so much faster than everything else. And we think it is the solar magnetic field. So the solar magnetic field, the lines whip up there and they accelerate. They think they get these charged particles in the corona accelerated to much higher speeds. So we think that it's some kind of interaction between the, the magnetic field of the sun and those charged particles that are out there. How do we know it's that temperature? If we go up there to observe, I mean we can't observe, we can't put a thermometer out there. There's not enough material there to take, a temp take the temperature. You need enough material to actually get a good temperature. But one way we can measure the temperature is by looking at the emission lines from that part of the spectrum. So we can take a spectrum of the corona during an eclipse and you don't find things like hydrogen at all. You don't find things like you know, hydrogen or helium at all. You find things like iron, but not the iron that you saw down at the surface of the sun that I showed you in that. You find iron that's been ionized 10 times or 12 times. So you find the spectrum of hydrogen where, where of iron which should have 26 electrons which has had 12 or 14 of them stripped off of it. It takes a very high temperature to remove that many, ele that many electrons because the, ele the atom wants to be neutral. So in order to, have the, to actually get lines of hydrogen that's been ionized multiple times, you have to have a very high temperature. So you can use those lines to go and work back and get the temperatures. And in this case, they're telling us that it's got to be millions of degrees up there in the corona. 
So those particles are moving incredibly fast. Okay, back to the surface of the sun. So that's a quick run through the atmosphere. Sunspots. Discovered by Galileo, right? He looked at the sun, saw the sunspots. And darker areas on the surface of the sun. They're not really dark. They're actually very bright. They just look dark because you're looking at something that might be 4,000 degrees against a background of something that's 6,000 degrees. So you have a very, very hot, bright background. These things look incredibly dark. But if you could somehow scoop out this material and take it out into space, it would have a nice deep red-orange glow. I mean, it is, it is very hot. They're still, they're not cold areas. You know, you can't take your trip to the sun and land on a sunspot. It's going to melt you just as easily as the rest of the sun is. It's just a little bit cooler. But because of that, they look dark. Now here you see that granulation again. And then here's the sunspot. So you have a much darker area, a much cooler area. And you may recognize these terms, umbra and penumbra, right, from eclipses. We talked about the shadow of the eclipse. Well, they're not exactly the same here. That's not a shadow of anything. But when you talk about the umbra of a sun, sunspot, you're talking about the dark area at the center, this very dark area. And the penumbra is the lighter areas around it. So related to what we talk about eclipses, but not formed the same way. There's nothing casting a shadow on the sun to form these. We think there's some, again, the sun's magnetic field, when the sun rotates, gets all twisted up. Remember we said the sun rotates like 10 or 11 days between the equator and the poles, so the equator is rotating a lot faster. Well, all those magnetic field lines get twisted up and tangled. And at times when it gets to heightened solar activity, they get twisted enough that they burst through the surface. And we think that's what cools off this section of the, su of the sun. So it cools off a sunspot wherever it happens to pop through. And that causes all the solar activity that we're going to be looking at here. And some of that we've looked at on the photos that we looked at a couple times ago last week. So here's what we think happens. That magnetic field gets all twisted up because the, remember the sun is rotating about every 25 days here and about every 36 days up here. So every couple times around the equator picks up and laps the poles. Makes a complete lap on the poles. So over a year, a couple of years, you really get twisted, tangled magnetic fields and they pop out through. So they'll come out through a south pole and in through a north pole. So they'll start to form pairs of sunspots. And sunspots are found in pairs. You'll have a south, one with a south polarity and one with a north polarity. So that gives you know, evidence for this. And when you look closer in, you can actually see these particles. You can actually almost see the magnetic field lines. Now that, you're not seeing the magnetic field line. You're seeing particles traveling along that magnetic field. So charged particles follow the magnetic field. And then they can emit energy and we can see them. Sort of like you've, if you've done the experiment to see the magnetic field on Earth. right? You have the iron, little shavings of iron, and you put, a mag, put them on a piece of paper over a magnet. And you can actually see the, see the magnetic field. Well, you're not seeing the magnetic field lines. You're seeing the iron tracing it. You're seeing the same thing here. You're seeing particles of hydrogen, helium, all these ionized particles following along those magnetic field lines in terms of you know, a solar prominence. And then we'll see in a little bit, you can get things like flares. But sunspots normally don't last all that long. Some can last for you know, 
few days, they can last for a week, a month, they can make a rotation or maybe two around the sun, but they come and go. So that, that section will go and then a new sunspot will occur. So a new pair will occur. And they also come in cycles. And I think, do I do... Well, here's what we there's the way I was trying to show it to you. Here it is in sort of a picture form. If you imagine that the sun's magnetic field is nice and perfect there at the beginning. Okay? So everything's nice and even here. Nice, perfect magnetic field looks like, the, looks like the, what the Earth would look like. You go around and the field lines would go up and around and back in and make a nice big pattern around the sun. But as those field lines get dragged around, remember the equator's rotating faster and significantly faster. So each time this happens, more and more, you twist them up more and more, and eventually you start to kink them and they pop out. So once they get, they bulge out, then you form solar prominences along those, the sunspot pairs where the magnetic field has, is intersecting with the solar atmosphere, and I said all the solar activity. So we think that it's the rotation of the sun. It's dragging this magnetic field lines around as it rotates relatively quickly. I mean the sun's a lot bigger than the earth and it still only takes 25 days to rotate at the equator. But it's a lot bigger than the earth. Remember some of those sunspots are the size of the earth. But if it kinks up the magnetic field lines when they burst through the atmosphere it cools off a part of it and makes that part a little more active. Now the cycle that we follow is 11 years. So every 11 years this number of sunspots will rise and get bigger and bigger and bigger, peak and get smaller and smaller and smaller again. And that's pretty consistent, you know. Here in 2000, 2000, 2001 we had a peak. Which means what? We're due again, right? 11 years from 2000, 2001 is 2011, 2012. Well we're due again. And we're supposed to have a maximum again, I think it's next year. But you can see it's a relatively, it's not an exact pattern, but it's pretty close. You have a nice bump there, there, you know, there. 1970 wasn't a very strong sunspot group. But the 1960, late 1950s, early 60s was, late 40s was, but then a bunch back here in the early 1900s were much less. So you've been getting differences in the amount of solar activity. So, it's not perfect. There's a lot more going on to the sun than just a simple magnetic field, as I said. I mean, that's probably what happens, but the solar magnetic field is a lot more complicated than just being perfect, getting twisted up. There's more to it. So you can get some very strong, very strong peaks, and you can get some ones that are relatively weak. But you still see this nice pattern. It's about every 11 years, you know, plus or minus a year or two, it peaks up there. You also see, up here you see, at minimum, maximum, minimum, you can see where the sunspots are occurring. So at maximum, you know, you might get a lot, you get a lot of sunspots, sunspot number of 100. That doesn't mean 100 sunspots, that depends on the sizes of the sunspots too. But you also see that when they start, so when you start a new cycle, they start way down here. So you get these sunspots forming up higher latitudes in the sun. So they're forming at latitudes of 30 degrees and 30 and 40 degrees, whereas when you come down to the end of the sunspot cycle as it goes through maximum and down, they form closer in. So what is the magnetic, what's happening with the magnetic field when it bulges out 
early in the cycle, it's bulging out at higher latitudes, and then that progressively goes down as you come out, as you come through the sunspot cycle. And this is what we call, if you turn it on its side, that's called the butterfly diagram. If you turn it on its side or tilt your head like this, it's supposed to look like the two wings of a butterfly here. So one wing, one wing. If you imagine looking at your side, it's called the butterfly diagram for the pattern of the sunspots. They form higher latitudes at the shorter, at the beginning of the cycle, and then down towards lower latitudes as you get towards the end. So an 11-year sunspot cycle. But really, it's a 22-year cycle. See, I just told you 11 years now, it's really 22 years. Well, sunspot cycle is sunspot, sunspot cycle is 11 years. That is correct. But there, there's really a 22-year magnetic cycle. So every 22 years, what happens is that the north and south pole of the sun flip. So when you have, so we call it an 11-year sunspot cycle, that's correct. The sunspots come and go with a period of 11 years. But in this one, 11, 11 years previously, north and south were flipped around. So the previous sunspot peak that was the same was actually 22 years ago. So it's actually every other one that, that matches up. So it's the reason we call there's a 22 year what we call magnetic cycle of the sun. So the mag there's a magnetic cycle, which is 22 years. And there is the sunspot cycle, which is 11 years. So again, they're related. There's just two sunspot cycles in every magnetic cycle. And the magnetic cycle just brings the north pole of the sun back to being the north pole of the sun again instead of this north and south having been flipped. Now when you look back here, I showed you the last time we only went back to about 1900. This one actually goes back a little bit further. And you have some areas. Well here in the early 1800s, it looks like it skipped a, skipped a cycle. There were two very little ones and one maybe nothing in there. And if you go back even further to the late 1700s, late 1600s, early 1700s, there was a big area here for about 40 or 50 years where there were hardly any sunspots. Yes, question. Sorry. It's probably similar to the Earth. I mean, the Earth does the same thing. It just makes tangle quicker on the sun, the way everything tangles up quicker. Because, I mean, the Earth will flip too. But they, would, they will flip, but I'm guessing that it's in the same, same type of idea that they're getting tangled up to the point and eventually it just resets the whole thing and when it does, it flips them apparently. I'm not a, not a solar expert, so I can't tell you for sure, but that's my understanding. But during this era, there were hardly any, hardly any sunspots. So fortunately, Galileo started observing a little bit earlier because Galileo was observing back here in the early 1600s and got to see sunspots. If he'd waited, you know, if Galileo had come along 50, 60, 70 years later, he wouldn't have seen many sunspots. So one of his discoveries was kind of fortunate there. So there are some areas where no sunspots occur for a while. And not for just, you know, not just missing one cycle here, but missing a bunch of cycles. So there's something else, you know, what happens with the sun's, what's happening with the sun's magnetic field there? Again, we don't completely understand the sun's magnetic, we don't completely understand the magnetic field of the sun. So there's a lot going on there. 
and a lot having to do. So the solar activity would have been a lot less during that time. There would not have been near as much activity. And actually this corresponds to the little ice age on Earth. So when there was a lot less solar activity, you know, there was not sending this extra heat towards the Earth and it was actually cooler than average for a few, for you know, a couple decades there. So it actually was an actual time of time the Earth was a little bit cooler. All right. All the activity is tied to these sunspots. So that's where all the activity is. So when we look at the suns, when we look at these sunspots which appear bright in this hydrogen image, you know, the activity of this prominence seems to go from one sunspot to probably another sunspot off over here. And other activity you see again comes between pairs of sunspots. A solar prominence is, as you see the prominence there, it's just a big sheet of material being ejected off the surface of the sun. That's a relatively mild. Prominence would be a relatively mild one. Although again, this, you know, the Earth would fit in there many times over. It's a big sheet of gas being shoved off the surface of the sun through this magnetic field. So the magnetic field comes up and brings some of this material and shoves it out into this pattern. But this is all tied to the sunspots, which is why we bring it back to the magnetic fields. So the magnetic field, again, magnetic field lines there as they expand outward, bring this material out. And you see some more here again. You're seeing most of what you're seeing is magnetic field lines coming out from a sunspot area and the particles following those magnetic field lines. So the particles are tracing the magnetic field lines for us. A solar flare is a bigger explosion. A prominence takes a little bit of time and it slowly develops. You can watch it develop over time. You, know, you can take images of it and it can take you know, days to actually form and it will burst out and come out and down. A solar flare is more of an explosion. Looks a lot like a prominence. Picture wise, you're not going to really tell the difference, right? I mean, it looks like a prominence. If you could look at it in time, that's when you'd see the difference. It can take only minutes or seconds to shove out the same amount of energy as the prominence took weeks, days to weeks to do. So a solar flare is a much more rapid expansion of the material. So the magnetic field lines flowing out a lot quicker. The material flowing out a lot quicker. So the same amount of energy being re released as we saw in the previous picture, but taking you know, a minute to send out all that material instead of multiple days, weeks in order to get it, in order to see this. But again you see, we're looking at the hydrogen image, you see the bright sunspot group very close to where this flare is occurring. And you'll always see that. You'll always see the flares occurring close to one of the, one of the sunspot groups. So a solar flare is, the prominence is, is a much slower process. A flare is the similar process but a much, much quicker version of it. All right. And the biggest one is the coronal mass ejection. Now we mentioned a little bit about this last week when we looked at some of the images. But it sends, as it goes through, that's really a lot of material being sent out very, very quickly very, very high speed. It takes a relatively short time for that to come. So remember the timing. Is it hours to come from the sun to the earth? You know, light takes eight minutes. This takes a couple of hours. Normally it would take it days to get here. 
So this is really being sent off at an extremely high speed. And the material can then strike the Earth's magnetosphere and mess it up. Makes a big mess of our magnetosphere. So you're smashing all these high energy particles into it. It distorts our magnetic field that we're used to. And it can distort it enough. As you said, some of these particles get through to the northern hemisphere. There's our aurora coming down as these particles channel down along the magnetic field line. Magnetic field still protects us to some extent. But the higher the energy of this mass ejection, the more, the lower these will come in latitude. And like I mentioned last time in the 18 1859, the large, last large coronal mass ejection that we had, last big, big one that came right towards Earth, you could actually see the aurora in Hawaii, where you never see the aurora. You could see the aurora in the Bahamas. I mean, very southern latitudes, you had distorted, you had such high energy, you were really messing up the Earth's magnetic field, and you could actually see the aurora in much lower latitudes. And not just a little, I mean, very, very bright aurora. So. It would be a wonderful sight for us now, make the aurora easily to see from here. But I think as we talked about last time, it would also play havoc with satellites. If it was something that strong, it would probably fry a, number of, a good number of satellites in orbit. So that's the, Mac, that's the biggest one, the coronal mass ejection. Again, the nice thing is that you know, it sends it out and just it concentrates it in one direction. So as long as we're not in the way of it, we're fine. You know, if it sends it out the other way, out into space or up toward, you know, up above the Earth or below the Earth, we're fine. It's only if it comes right in our direction. And the solar wind. Solar wind is a constant. Solar wind is it always is, it's always occurring. It's pushing material out from the sun. This is a much more leisurely. So we went from the prominences to the flares to the coronal mass ejections that were getting higher and higher energy. The solar wind is just a constant stream of particles through holes, what we call holes in the corona, so lesser areas of the magnetic field. So you have, when you look at the magnetic field of the sun as it gets all twisted up here and turned, there's some areas where it loops back in through it and kind of traps particles. So here we're trapping particles, trapping particles. They can't get out. Those charged particles can't get away. But here they can. Some of these magnetic field lines are now just stretch, are stretching off into space very long, and it's much easier for particles to get through there. So through those coronal holes, again, holes in the, essentially holes in the magnetic field, that's where charged particles escape, and those are what hit us all the time. Those cause the typical aurora that we see. So we'll actually get, you actually get the aurora caused by these. Now this one, I said most of those were in visible light in the hydrogen light, this is actually an x-ray image of the sun. So we're not looking at the surface of the sun there, you're looking at the corona. So we're looking at the outer, outer layers of the, outer layers of the sun, very far out. And you're seeing brighter areas where there's more material, and you're seeing some dark areas where there's very little x-ray emission, much less material in the corona because it's all flowing out. There's a weaker spot in the magnetic field there and it's escaped. So the solar wind is pushing out through those. And those again change. You can see just how this one has changed over the shape of an, over the course of part of an orbit. You know, it's weakening here, maybe at its strongest here and wasn't as strong, so it got stronger and then it's closing up. And then another one may be starting to open up. And that's just material being shoved out, being pushed out from the surface of the sun and escaping from the surface of the sun through holes in the magnetic field, essentially. Solar corona. Changes. 
So it's not a consistent either. We looked at the first picture of it. It looked a little more uniform. Now here's another picture of it, again in visible light. But it's not near as regular. They're stretching this way and this way and a little bit up here. It's much larger when you get towards the peak of the sunspot cycle. So as the sun gets towards its peak, right now, the corona gets to be irregular. Goes off in a couple different directions, whereas at the sun, minimum sunspot activity, it's more of just an atmosphere around the around this moon as seen during an eclipse. So it gets much, much larger, and it not again, not as smooth as it was before. It was, when you looked at that first picture, it was pretty much just a little, didn't look that different than the chromosphere. It was just scattered around the sun. Here you have a much more, much more interesting picture as we're seeing it closer to the peak of the sunspot cycle. All right, we'll get started here. We'll finish up, finish up. This is the last section of the sun, so we'll finish this. I'm going to do this first slide, and we'll finish this up on Wednesday. So we will get through everything for your exam. Yay! But nuclear fusion. We're going back down. So we went through, we started at the center of the sun. I told you a little bit about what's going on and the structure as we went further out. We went out through the atmosphere, and we got out to the corona, and then we started going back in. So we went back to the surface of the sun and the corona and talked about the atmosphere again in terms of the solar activity. Now we're going way back down to the core. And nuclear fusion is how the sun produces its energy. So nuclear fusion requires taking, in this case, protons and smashing them together. Now protons have a positive charge. When you bring two positive charges close together, what do they do? push each other apart, right? Two, two positive charges want to repel each other. So you have to, in order to fuse them, you've got to get them moving incredibly quickly to get them to actually collide before their electromagnetic repulsion just pushes them apart. Because they don't, they don't want to be close together, they're, posit they're po both positively charged. You need extremely high temperatures, so even the surface of the sun is nothing. There's no energy production going on on the surface of the sun. It's just energy coming from the interior. So the surface of the sun is only 6,000 degrees. Not near enough for the hydrogen particles to collide and fuse with each other. You need 10 million. Minimum of 10 million degrees in order to get hot enough that you can actually get those two protons close enough that they fuse together. Now how do they fuse together? You need another source of, you need another force. Okay, gravity, the gravity's not going to be strong enough. Gravity pulls things together, right? But gravity's not going to be strong enough between two little tiny things. And at those distances, the electromagnetic force overwhelms them and would shove them apart. But when you get two particles of the same charge, even two nuclei, nuclear particles, very close together, if they're close enough, there's another force called the strong nuclear force that pulls them together. So once you get them close enough, if you have that energy to get those two protons close enough, then they stick to each other. And then they will fuse. And the first step in the chain is shown here. Proton collides with proton, forms a deuteron, which is heavy hydrogen. It's hydrogen with a proton and a neutron. And it throws out two particles. Well, you had a positive charge and a positive charge and a positive charge. You can't lose a charge. There's positive, positive, and one, two positives going in and one positive coming out. You need another particle that comes out called a positron, which is an anti-electron. So it's an electron, exactly the same as an electron, except it's positively charged. 
And that will very quickly find an electron and they'll annihilate each other and give off energy. So that's a big, there's a big source of the energy right there is this positron finding an electron. Another particle that comes out that we'll talk more about on Wednesday is a neutrino. Neutrino comes out. Neutrinos are interesting because they don't interact with anything. They don't like to interact with other material. So they will come straight out from the center of the sun instantaneously. They'll come right out from the sun and eight minutes later they'll be here at the earth. Unless they travel faster than light, which was the one thing that came, something that came up recently. So if they travel faster than light, then they can be here quicker than the light from the sun. But I'll come back here on Wednesday and we'll finish up this, but this is the last section of this chapter. So we'll finish up 9. I will then start on chapter 10, but chapter 10 will not be part of your exam. So chapter 9 will be all you have to worry about for the exam. Questions, questions? Otherwise, hopefully these recorded fine and I'll put them up in a few minutes.